The Book of Wisdom, chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. Do not court death by the errors of your ways, nor invite destruction through the work of your hands. For God did not make death. He takes no pleasure in destroying the living. To exist, for this he created all things. The creatures of the world have health in them. In them is no fatal poison. And Hades has no power over the world. For uprightness is immortal. But the godless call for death with deed and word. Counting him friend, they wear themselves out for him. With him they make a pact, worthy as they are to belong to him. Modern Grace We now continue on our series of what the Bible says about seeking God. Our first scripture comes from Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. There is only one end, no matter how many ways that man might take. There is an American way, a Japanese way, and a German way. There can be family ways. People can walk in all kinds of ways, but there is an end to all of them, and that is the way of death. In his ignorance and presumptuousness, mankind has thought that any old way will do. What God wants us to understand is that might be true, but it all depends on what we want to produce at the end. What do we want to produce at the end of our lives? If we want to produce the same things that God wants to produce, then we will walk, conduct our lives a certain way. And that way, of course, is the way of God. Thus, in this verse, he is giving us an overview of life. The conclusion he wants us to take from it is that we should have a long-range view of life. He wants us to understand and conduct our lives according to this principle. It is what happens at the end that counts. Present appearances can be deceiving. There are people who may look good, respectable, discreet, and civil. Then there are those who do not look so credible. Yet in the end, the ones who are not currently respectable may turn out to be the ones who have eternal life, whereas the ones who appear good and civil may be the ones who end up failing. If we had looked at Solomon at the beginning of his relationship with God, and that it's someone thought to be a harlot, such as the woman who anointed uh, Jesus' feet with precious oil. On the surface, who would we think had the better chance? Present appearances are deceiving. God says to aim for the end. Seek first the kingdom of God, is the unspoken directive here. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 21 through 23. Under three things the earth trembles, under four it cannot bear up. A slave when he becomes king, and a fool when he is filled with food, and an unloved woman when she gets a husband.
and a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. Each of these illustrations describes people unprepared for their new status. We can be certain that God will not allow this to happen in his family kingdom. Those who are in it will be prepared to live, work, and rule at the level he assigns to them. Their responsibilities will be challenging, but they will not be constantly frustrated due to being in over their heads, nor will their offices go to their heads. Despite having great power, they will humbly serve, exhibiting no abuse of authority in the conduct of their responsibilities. They will be balanced in all areas of life. Most dynastic rulers, like the monarchs of Europe, understand this concept well. Recently, Smithsonian Magazine ran a long article about Marie Antoinette, her Austrian Habsburg parents arranged her marriage while she was very young, promising her to the Bourbon family who ruled France. She was to become the wife of the future Louis XVI, also quite young at the time. Within a year of this arrangement, the Bourbons sent a tutor to Austria to school Marie to become France's queen. The tutor remained her almost constant companion until Marie was married when she was 15 years old. Prince Charles of England experienced a similar rigorous education. He has been trained since birth to sit on the throne of England. In one sense, especially in his pre-adult years, he had little time for himself. We might think that this practice has not worked well, but we must not forget that these monarchs lack the ability from God to discipline their human natures. Nevertheless, God follows the same principle of preparation, and our lives must be devoted to these operations. Thus, we must follow the same basic program laid down for Prince Charles, except that our preparations are for the kingdom of God. Just as Charles must devote himself to learning all the particulars of his kingdom's operations, so must we devote ourselves to learning the ways of God's kingdom, because we too are to be kings. Revelation chapter 5, verse 10. God will not allow us to, to escape these responsibilities. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits, the winds return. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there such a thing of which it said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things. 
nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Overall, how do we as Christians perceive time? Every day we are witnesses to its progression. Daylight comes and passes and night arrives only to be followed by daylight again. We can look at a clock and see that its hands are moving, but how, in what manner, is time moving? As a culture, the Greeks have become known as a people sensitive to the rhythms of time, and this, though written by Sol Solomon, a Hebrew, is a decidedly Greek view of life and of time's movement. This perception of life and time, their acute awareness of things like the perpetual ebb and flow of tides, the continuous cycle of the four seasons, and the constant repetition of weather patterns. They become a major building block of Greek philosophy, leading them to develop the concept that time is cyclical. They concluded that man's life is lived within a series of continuous, changeless recurrences. To them, time works like a wheel turning on an axis, and the events that mark time's progress repeat themselves endlessly. They believed that nothing could be done about it because such events will happen eternally. Thus, a person is born, lives his life on a stage, and when his part is done, he exits. Such belief inexorably leads to a fatalistic view of life. Notice verse 8 especially. The Sonsino commentary opens that Solomon is saying that this inescapable repetition in life is such weariness that he lacked the words to describe it aptly. Despite what Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, the general Hebrew outlook is decidedly different. The Hebrew concept of time greatly benefited from God's revelation. In Jude chapters 14 and 15, the apostle quotes an Old Testament personality, Enoch, whose pre-flood prophecy deflected Hebrew thought about time in a far different direction. Jude chapters 14 and 15. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about what these men also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. This quotation shows that the Hebrews who believed God knew that time was headed on a very different path from the Greek view. Events do not just happen in a vacuum. They are moving in a definite direction. Enoch is warning that a time is coming when men will have to answer for what they have done during their lifetimes. Even so, he is nowhere near the earliest indicator that time and the events within it are moving in a specific direction. Notice Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed, more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, 
and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God had revealed himself to the Hebrew descendants of Abraham, and some among them, like Moses, believed what he said. Thus they knew that time was not cyclical, as the Greeks perceived it, but linear. The Creator is moving time and all that happens within it in a definite direction. The prophet Amos receives credit for giving that, quote, sometime a general title, or at least the term is first used within its prophecy. He called it the day of the Lord. Generally, he appears to mean that the time when God will intervene with a strong hand in the affairs of this world, an act that is definitely not repetitious. However, it remained for the Christian church to define time and its right usage for its members. The church's conception of time blends the cyclical concepts of the Greeks and the linear concepts of the Hebrews. It is true that many things in life, things like wars, economic depressions, and political revolutions do occur, do occur recur in an exorable manner. Yet, as the New Testament shows, much of this happens as a result of man's self-centered nature. In other words, they do not have to happen, but they do happen because man's choices make them happen. Man continually makes bad choices because his nature is unchangeably anti-God. Thus, in general, the Christian view is that time indeed contains stressful, repeating cycles. Solomon describes, yet the New Testament calls these cycles evil. However, it also shows that time is moving in a definite direction and that God himself is orchestrating many of the events within its progress toward the return of Jesus Christ, the day of the Lord, and the establishment on earth of his family kingdom. This led the church to develop, under the inspiration of Jesus Christ, an overall concept of time management unique to church members. It has its roots in the Old Testament. Isaiah 55, excuse me, Isaiah 55, verse 6, urges us to seek the Lord while he may be found. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? The meaning of these verses is mystifying. One commentator suggests this title, Questions Without Answers. This does not mean, though, that one should ignore God and his way and avoid receiving godly correction. Why? Because God does have the answers, and he reveals them individually within the relationship. We may need the answers very much. The questions must be understood, at least somewhat, against the background of the context of the previous two chapters, in which he is showing that the roots of true satisfaction and contentment 
lie in God's gifting within a relationship with him. In addition, we must understand them by evaluating the book's overall theme, in which he urges us to keep God's commandments, thus to live an above-the-sun life. We can also seek to grasp them by considering Solomon and what he reveals of himself. Solomon presents a series of perplexing statements, but he gives no clear answers in the immediate context. Recall, however, the overall subject of the chapter is about finding satisfaction in life, and he uses examples to illustrate circumstances about why life is puzzling and dissatisfying. Let us consider Solomon himself. Did he know the answers? First, he probably knew the overall answer to satisfaction and contentment in life, but he did not necessarily experience it because he did not apply God's way well. It is difficult to see how having a father like David, as well as the personal experiences he had with God early in his manhood, that he did not know the overall answer. However, did he truly believe it? Did he live it? Both are necessary. God has not answered this in absolute terms as he does regarding David. We have no doubt that David will be in God's kingdom based on what is in the Bible. The answer regarding Solomon is that he apparently fell short. Is he lost? We don't, we don't know. And it is not our place to even think in those matters. Nevertheless, he knew intellectually what the missing link is. The answer to contentment in life hinges on whether one knows what God's overall purpose for his life is. It is another matter altogether whether we believe that purpose is true and make the effort to seek God and live as he commands by faith. Isaiah 55, 1-9 Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come buy wine and milk, without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, 
Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. This paragraph presents an overall and continuous solution to this weakness in the lives of the converted. First, notice that this paragraph is in the form of a command. It is not a mere suggestion, but a direct charge from our Creator. As the reference to David indicates, it is addressed to his people, so his audience already knows him to some degree. The word return in verse 7 confirms this, indicating that he and they already have a relationship, but those he is speaking to have lost some resolve and drifting apart has occurred. The mention of David appears in verses 3 and 4. When this was written, David had been dead for about 250 years, so this inclusion inserts some symbolism and moves the time setting, making it a prophecy that fits it into the end time as well as Isaiah's lifetime. David is a type of Jesus Christ in his office as king which further confirms that God is commanding this of those who already know and have a relationship with him. Not only have these people drifted away, but they are also not making the effort to seek him to strengthen their relationship. The responsibility of those who have made the covenant with him to seek him is thus not that of striving to find him in order to, uh, to establish a relationship as a relationship already exists, Rather, it is seeking him in order to be like him and become more fully intimate with his will. Verses 1 through 3 remind us that our relationship with him is not without cost. This paragraph begins with an urgent command, Come. The sense is that paying the cost of seeking is obligatory if the relationship is to continue. We need to understand our position here. God not only loves us, but he also greatly desires us to be in his kingdom. At the same time, he wants to show, he wants us to show voluntarily that we desire the relationship. In addition, to reinforce our obligation, we must grasp and fully accept that he has every legal right to command us to do this. In Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 through 3, our part in this relationship is clearly not costly in terms of money, but it is in terms of our lives and how we spend them. Our lives must be lived by faith in the one who redeemed us. Paul describes the Christian life as a living sacrifice. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. The very wording in this exhortation implies that Israel did exactly what he did not want them to do. They sought satisfaction and fulfillment in the world, things that do not satisfy. 
they believed the world's word and practiced as it did, thus rejecting God and his word. But we must not follow their example. What does it mean to seek the Lord? Amos chapter 5 verse 4. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. Seek good and not evil that you may live, so that the Lord God of hosts will be with you. As you have spoken, hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Note that this is written to Israel, to whom God had already revealed himself. Therefore, seek me most certainly does not mean look for him in order to find him, but seek him in order to be like him in the conduct of his life, to know his will so one can submit. Instead of being like a normal wife, Israel eagerly pursued ways to be unfaithful to her husband, God, which is why he calls her contrary, or excuse me, contrary. Ezekiel chapter 33 verses 10 through 11 clarifies and adds emphasis to this. Therefore you, O son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus you say, if our transgressions and our sins lie upon us and we pine away in them, How can we then live? Say to them, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn away, turn from his way, and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? The phrase, As I live, in verse 11, appears many times in Ezekiel. In all of the cases, it is an oath, but in this one case, there is an alternative meaning. It is simply the answer to the question asked in verse 10. How should we live? The answer, as I live, says the Lord. It does not mean to live on the same level, but to live as God would live if he were a man. This way is spelled out in great detail in the commandments, statutes, and judgments. In addition, God gives many examples from the lives of others to clarify exactly what he wants, especially the life of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. John chapter 1, verse 14. What God proposed to Israel and to us is an entire way of life that covers every possible choice that might confront us. This way is the only way the one way that will produce abundant life and at the same time prepare us for God's kingdom.